weeks ago, he's like, hey, do you want to preach in August? I was honestly thinking that he'd be out of town. And I thought, this will be great. You know, he won't even know what happens. Maybe I could go substitute teacher style and just show a movie. Uh, you know, pay Rich a few dollars to forget to record the sermon. Uh, we could have a great grand old time here. And then uh, this week he told me that he was going to be here. And I was like, oh, no, I got to actually write a sermon or something. Um, but I, I think that God has something for us to learn today. So for those of you who don't know me, uh, just a, a little bit of background, and I'll, I'll probably tell some more of my story later on today. But I've um, been coming to City Lights for just over two years. We've been in Scranton um, for that entire time. We just moved here. I'm a medical student at the school in town. I'm 30 years old. Uh, my wife and I have been married eight years last week, which was pretty fun, and we have three kids, um, five, three, and six months. So our life is a little hectic, but that's all right. Um, God got a hold of me pretty early in my life, and I'm really grateful to him for that. And he, around my middle school years, you know, age 11, 12, something like that, he really put this hunger in my soul for him, and I've been pursuing him uh, ever since. So that's coming up on like 20 years, which kind of scares me because I feel like I'd be a little further along by now. Um, but I think that that might be what God wants to teach us today. So uh, I love Jesus. I love the church. I love the text, and uh, the opportunity to teach the text is really a treat for me, and I I hope that God will work on us and shape us from it today. So we're going to continue with Acts. I'll invite you to grab a Bible. If you brought one, that's great. Otherwise, there should be one in front of you. That way you can know I'm not making this stuff up. And uh, if you actually don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one and take it home and study it. And we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 9. So let's remember our context just a little bit to find out where we've been up until this point. Jesus uh, left his disciples. He was resurrected. He hung out with them for a little while. And then he leaves. And when he leaves, he says in Acts 1 verse 8, he says, You are going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and then in the surrounding area of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And so far in Acts, it's actually followed that progression. We saw some stuff happen in Jerusalem And then there's some persecution, then there's some scattering of the believers because they're trying to um, not die, which is also good. And so then they they scatter to Judea and Samaria, and you actually see um, the gospel go there, and lives are changed, and the Holy Spirit descends. And now we're sort of transitioning into the the section of the book where the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And, And that outline is followed through the book of Acts. So we saw Philip preach to the Ethiopian eunuch, who's then going to take the gospel down to East Africa, and it continues there today. And uh, then we met Saul, and last week we met Saul. uh, We had known of him before. He was a violent man and persecuted the church, but God confronted him on the road, saved him, and said, you are going to be my guy to send. uh, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. You are going to preach to them, and really the Gentiles are the inhabitants of the ends of the earth. So that's you and me. And we can know that God's plan is still coming true because uh, we are here today worshiping. So um, we met Saul last week. And just as an aside, I kind of, I'm I'm struck by this every time. I grew up in the church. My dad's actually a pastor. And so I knew these Bible stories from a pretty young age, which is awesome. I'm I'm certainly never going to uh, complain about that. But when you, when you're familiar with them, you lose some of the reality. Does anybody know what, what I'm talking about? When you get familiar with a story, it kind of loses its power. But we need to remind ourselves that Saul was not a seeker, right? I mean, he wasn't like questioning, like, I wonder, is this true? Is, you know, he was violent. He was zealous for his own beliefs. You know, he, he I, I tried to come up with uh, this week, I was thinking of who Saul might be today. And maybe he is a leader of ISIS, 
Does everybody know what ISIS is? The Islamic State in the Middle East, kind of wreaking havoc, persecuting Christians, killing people who won't, who won't become um, Muslim. He is like one of their leaders, and God meets him on the beach and says, stop it, you are going to be my guy, and I'm going to use you for my glory. And I, don't, I think the reality of that is lost, because we think uh, that Saul kind of had it in him the whole time. But, but he was as hard-hearted as it gets, and about as far away from the gospel as we could imagine. Do you think the early Christians were eagerly waiting and just expectant, praying that God would save Saul? You know, that they believed that God had the power to save even a man like that? I don't think they did. Honestly, I think that they were probably hiding and just hoping that he would die. I bet some of them prayed that Saul would die. And yet, uh, I think there's a lesson in that for us, that we need to come to God even with the people that we think are furthest away from the gospel. And we need to say, God, would you reach out in your power and save them? I think it's worth uh, considering for us. So that's not even my point today. That was just for free. You can know that you got that as a bonus. Um, So we're going to keep reading in Acts, and we're in Acts 9, starting in um, verse 19. We're going to start sort of in the second half of that. This tells the story of what happens to Saul, and what I'm going to probably do is end up just calling him Paul, because we we know him as Paul later in in the the church. So um, I actually don't have Jesse's good stories, or his funny jokes, or even his rugged good looks. Uh, So it's hard for me to keep you awake today, so I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to actually read this. Um, I'll read it aloud. In many churches, actually, they stand every time the Bible is read. So if you're able to, um, I'll ask you to stand and I'll read. This is on page 596. If you're not familiar with the Bible and you don't know where Acts is, it's on page 596 of the Bible in front of you. So let's read. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. I think we can uh, not fault them for that, right? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us, Spirit, that you would soften our hearts Um, that we would become more like you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. It was uh, was funny, when Jesse asked if I wanted to preach, he offered me the option to either continue in Acts or to sort of choose something that God had been stirring in me to preach on entirely independently. And I think in God's providence and in his sense of humor, I get to do both. And uh, I'm not even going to cheat that much, a little bit maybe. But um, I really want to wanted to say that, that God has been stirring this in me for at least five, six, seven, eight years, 
Um, and that, I really am only going to say one thing. I'm going to break every rule of preaching. I think in, in seminary they, they tell you to have three points in a poem or something like that. And uh, even last night I had two points that I was going to say, and I cut one of those out this morning, and now we're going to have one point. So uh, I hope to get you out here before 3 p.m. All of my rehearsals were about two and a half hours, something like that. Um, but what I'm going to talk about is time. So how appropriate is that, right? Um, what I want to ask is, uh, is what can God teach us about time? So most of us, I think if we're honest, we're in this constant battle with time. I know I am. Uh, our life is really busy. Most of us are in a hurry all the time. And so we're either wishing for it to slow down because we have so much to do, or we're on the other extreme and we say, I just want time to speed up because I don't, I don't want to go through what I'm going through right now. I just want to get to my destination. And uh, obviously kids are perfect sermon illustrations because they don't hide anything. Our five-year-old is still at the point where pretty much everything is out in the open, and I can't tell you how many times she says, this, this is taking forever. I mean, like even last night, she asked, you know, how many days until we go to grandma's house? I'm like, well, it's next Friday. She's like, oh, I want that to be Friday. You know, and, and she's counting the days and just wondering how, how can I get there faster? You know, we're in this constant struggle. And most of us probably live at one extreme or the other, although um, some of my med school friends happen to live in both at the same time, where they, they all of a sudden, or they, at the same time, they need time to slow down so they can get everything done, but then they also look ahead and say, well, I, I'm going to be a doctor someday. I wish I could just skip the training part and all the school and all the hours and all that. And so we managed to, to live at both extremes at the same time. But I, I, I invite you to ask, where do I live on that spectrum? Am I happy with time? Am I comfortable? Am I in a hurry? Am I wishing that uh, what I'm doing would just be over because I want to get to the next thing? And I suppose that we shouldn't be surprised that God thinks about time a bit differently than we do. And so to get at some of those thoughts, we're going to use Paul's story. Um, and what I want to do is sort of build a timeline. So last week we met Paul, and we, we saw him get, get confronted by Jesus. And we're going to put that point right here. We're going to build a timeline together. So this is Paul meets Jesus, and Jesus says, You are my guy to reach the Gentiles and their kings. Okay? So let's put that point here, and then all the way on this side of the stage is going to be Paul goes to the Gentiles and preaches to their kings. Okay, so there's a timeline, and most of us would probably think Paul's called and he does it, right? What, is there a gap at all? And if there is, why would there be one, and what can we learn about time from it? Now, unfortunately, Acts chapter 9 does not really help us in this timeline-building exercise because it doesn't, there's not a lot that's written in terms of a linear sense, and Luke is not trying to tell Paul's story, he's trying to tell the church's story. Thankfully, we're not stuck with Acts chapter 9 alone, we have the rest of the Bible to help us, and Galatians 1 is actually a perfect spot for us to turn, because Paul in Galatians is actually going to go through his timeline in a much more linear fashion. And he's going to do this because he's trying to help the church in Galatia, he's actually correcting them because they need uh, some, some help, and to do that, he's going to defend himself and tell his timeline um, so that he can say, look, I'm, I'm who I say I am, and I can instruct you in this matter. So let's turn to Galatians 1. It's on page 631 of the Bible in front of you. And we're going to read, starting in verse 13, Paul's going to tell us a little bit more about his, his life here. So verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Time out for just a second. 
let's like appreciate who Paul is. He's not uh, meek and mild. He's not lazy. He is a go-getter, and he is extremely zealous, so extremely zealous he was that he was beyond pretty much everybody of his own age. I think that will come into play later when we talk about how much time there was between when he was called and when he actually got to do what God called him to do. So let's jump back in, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, there's his calling again, It says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Okay, so here's a little bit more of the story. The next verse even says, verse 18, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a time, there's three years. So we're going to start building our timeline. We have Paul is called, he goes to the desert. At least I'm pretty sure that Arabia, I'm no geography expert, but I'm pretty sure Arabia today is like Arabia back then, and it was probably a desert. So we have three years uh, to put in our timeline. Okay, that's a decent amount of time. Think about what you were doing three years ago, uh, and imagine that you were called by God to do something, and you still hadn't seen it three years later. I know I was in a totally different part of the state, working an entirely different job, and dreaming about going to medical school someday. That was three years ago for me. So... So we need to put that on the timeline and keep going. So then it says he went up to Jerusalem. Let's see, verse 18. And he he went to visit Cephas, who is Peter. And he remained with him 15 days, so two weeks. I'm not sure two weeks is going to fit on our timeline, uh, but we'll put it there anyway. And then it says down in verse 21, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now, the names aren't that important, but they are regions, sort of like states. Like, then I went into Pennsylvania and New York. And that's where he is in Tarsus and Antioch, which we'll find out later in Acts. Those two cities are in those regions. It's a lot of names. It's not all that important. But um, we can know that he's at least talking about the same thing that's going on in Acts. So there's our timeline. We're starting to get a little bit clearer of a picture. Um, So then we, we need to sort of ask, how long was he in Syria, Cilicia, Tarsus, Antioch? Uh, those places, because we know that he went into the desert, which I think is instructive for us anyway, and then there's this time that he's in Tarsus, he's in Antioch, and he's in these regions, and then he gets sent on his first missionary journey. Well, unfortunately, the book of Acts is not a timeline, it's not a chronology like we would expect in the West here today, so it's not all that explicit, but I want to tell you that every resource that I looked at, and I tried to look at a bunch of commentaries and a bunch of people who know something about this, they put that time between six and ten years. Okay, so we already had three years. Now we have, let's call it eight years, we'll split the difference. So three years to there, and then eight years to here, and then finally he's sent on his first missionary journey to reach the Gentiles. And he hasn't even talked to a king yet. I mean, we'll leave that part out of the calling for now, um, assuming that he's pretty happy just to be sent on his first missionary journey. So here's Paul, man of fire. Okay, he is a zealous man, 11 years of preparation. I don't know what that does to you. That, that really speaks to me because I don't like to wait for anything. I mean, 11 years ago, I was 19. I didn't know anything. Um, and yet, if God had called me at 19 to something and I still haven't seen it by today, I'd like to think that I would still be holding fast to that, but I'm not so sure. So this might help us understand that God views time a little bit differently than we do. And I think that a major principle is that God is not in a hurry. You know, God called Paul, but he didn't end up actually using him for that explicit purpose for 11 years. Why would he wait? 
Do we think that God was just up there saying, man, I knew I had somebody for this task. Who was it? Hmm, I just can't, I can't remember. He's gone, you know? Like, I don't think that's God, right? God knew what he was doing, and he was preparing Paul for what he, the work that he had. So we need to understand that God is not in a hurry. Can you think of any time in Jesus' life where Jesus himself was in a hurry? I couldn't come up with any. There's at least a half a dozen where people around him are in a hurry, and they want him to hurry up. But Jesus is not in a hurry, and I think that we need to understand that that's the character of God. That our foolishness leads us to think that there will be swift and uh, effective and, and really rapid progress on this road towards fruitfulness, and yet there might be a long time of preparation in what God has for us to do. So we need to come around to the principle that all healthy growth takes time. And, and really, this is true even in the natural world. I mean, there are there are natural processes, and they pretty much all take a long time. I'm supposed to know something about the human body by now in my training, and I could not come up with very many things that happened quickly. There were two that I thought of this week. One is a bad thing, and that's cancer. We really, I mean, cancer can grow really quickly, and none of us want to compare our spiritual lives to cancer, I don't think. Uh, the other is childbirth, which does happen quickly. Um, it's nine months in preparation, but then the actual event is quick, but it's also quite traumatic. So I don't think I want my spiritual life to look like childbirth either. So um, we need to sort of realize that all change takes a long time. And our failure to realize this is why we give up so quick on a lot of things. You know, I'll, I'll skip dessert twice, and I'm like, okay, I'm on a diet. This is great. And then I'll wake up the next morning and be like, I don't look any different at all. This is, this is outrageous, you know? And so I'll finish off the ice cream in the freezer for breakfast or something. And, um, and we give up on things like that. You know, we'll start running or we'll start doing some sort of exercise program and we, we look in the mirror after four days and we don't look any different. It's going to take at least a month, maybe six or eight weeks. And we hate that, you know? Like we want to see instant results. That's just sort of who we are. They're, we're just so impatient. There's a... Um, a funny story of a student who goes to the president of his college, and he says, is there not a shorter course that I could take? You know, there are 130 credits for this thing, and there's all these other courses that I don't even want to take, and all this, and the president, being wise, he says, well, yeah, sure, there's always a shorter course, but that depends on what you want to be. When God wants to make an oak, he takes a hundred years, and when he wants to make a squash, he takes six months. And he, and he lets the student, you know, sort of dwell on that and say, which one are we going to be? Do we want to be the oak? Do we want to be the squash? And I think it's important for us to, to take that in and to realize that, that this growth is going to take time and it's probably not going to be uh, uniform. You know, like in a tree, I just learned this this week, that all the growth in a tree happens in a really short period of time in a year. It's about four weeks in early summer and all of the new growth is sort of deposited in the tree in that time, and then it takes the rest of the year to solidify that growth. And that's the seasonal nature of growth in the natural world, and I have seen it in my own heart. There are, I can look back in my life and see these seasons where there are Im is immense growth, and then it takes years to sort of let that growth solidify and to really take root in my heart. And um, I think we need to sort of understand that. So there's this fantastic quote from a... Uh, an English, or at least from Great Britain, uh, from Graham Scroggie. You, just, you have to say Graham Scroggie, I think, when you say it like that. Uh, it really has more effect. But um, he wrote uh, probably in the like, mid-1900s, something like that, early 1900s, and I think he hits the nail on the head. So I think, yeah, it's up there. Let's read it together. He says, um, spiritual renewal is a gradual process. All growth is progressive, and the finer the organism, the longer the process. 
It is from measure to measure, from stage to stage, and from day to day. And how varied these are. There are great days, days of decisive battles, days of crisis in spiritual history, days of triumph in Christian service, and days of the right hand of God upon us. Hallelujah, right? But there are also idle days, days apparently useless, when even prayer and holy service seem a burden. Are we in any sense renewed in these days? Yes, for any experience which makes us more aware of our need of God must contribute to spiritual progress. Any experience which, contribu- which, which makes us more aware of our need for God must contribute to spiritual progress. I can remember the first time I read that feeling such a sense of relief that my experience wasn't just me alone and that, I, I was, that somebody else had, had actually gone through what I'd experienced. What's really uh, interesting for me is that once we start to think this way and understand this principle, we see it all over the Bible and really through church history. So let's take some examples. How about Moses? Moses is classic, right? I mean, it's other than Abraham, maybe uh, David, who we'll actually look at in a second. Moses is like preeminent figure of the Old Testament. And so God comes to Moses. He says, Moses, you are going to deliver my people. You're my guy. And Moses says, sweet. And he tries to do it. And he kills an Egyptian and he runs away. He's gone. Do you know how long he was gone? 40 years. 40 years. I'm not even 40 years old, okay? So that's a long time of preparation. I can't even imagine what Moses went through and how he must have felt, you know, like he probably wasted God's call in his life because I'm sure he didn't think he was God's guy anymore. So it took him 40 years. He needed that much preparation for his self-confidence to die down, for his understanding of that he has no strength on his own and that all of his strength is God's. How about David? You want more examples? I mean, we can keep going. We could be here all day, probably. David was anointed king, and most people think he was probably 10, maybe 12, 13 at the most. Okay, he was out with the sheep. Samuel comes and anoints him king. He's told, you are going to be Israel's king. Do you know how long it was until he was actually king? 25 years. 25 years. And he's pursued by Saul through the desert. He thinks he's probably going to get murdered. And then it's just this long, winding road for him to actually become what God had called him to. And I think that whenever we look at any history in, in the church, any history in the Bible, we see this same pattern, that God has this pattern of calling people, letting them, you know, make some progress, and then setting them aside for a little while. And that's what it feels like to us, but really what he's doing is preparing us to understand that we have no strength on our own. And it just takes a long, long time for us to do that. We need the long history and the long years of experience to know ourselves and that we have no strength. So what I'm going to actually do now, and this is the part where I had two points and I threw the other one out because it was going to take 45 minutes and it was, um, you'll have to just make Jesse ask me back. But um, I want to tell a little bit of our story, my wife and I, uh, because I think that it sort of illustrates this principle that that God is going to prepare us, and it's going to take a little bit of time. So, um, uh, let's see, we met in college, and I was actually an engineering student at the time because I knew I could get good internships in the summertime to pay for the school that I was going to throughout the year, which is really circular reasoning, by the way, because now you're ending up working the job to pay for the degree so that you can, it just doesn't really work, because I knew that I didn't probably want to be an engineer, but I worked in it for a little while, and um, my wife and I sort of felt this stirring to explore other things, and God led us to uh, an opportunity in Morocco. So we actually moved to Morocco. 
I was working as a, an IT guy for a school there, and she, my wife was teaching English, which is uh, her profession, or was, before the kids came along. And um, so we were there, and, and I began to sort of question my calling in life, you know, and, and being overseas does that sometimes. And I was 25, 24, uh, and that's a, a perfect season of life to begin to question these things. Um, and I began to feel this sort of tug towards medicine, which was uh, odd, but it became sort of this repetitive thing, and I would tell people, well, I would have done medicine if I could do it over again, but it's too late, because I'm 25, and I'm stuck in my career, and woe is me, and let's get out the violin, and we'll play the sad song for Kevin. And um, my wife looked at me one day and said, Kevin, you're 25, you're not dead. So, you know, if you want to pursue this, then we need to go for it, uh, but I'm not going to have you sort of 50 years from now looking back saying, what if? Which I, I'm really um, amazed at her sacrifice that way. But so then I started praying about it and started talking to everybody that I knew and people who knew me, and they said, oh, no, I think medicine is right in line with what God made you to be. I'm like, well, where were you like eight years ago when I was making this decision? But, you know, I let that go. Um, and I began to get this sense of calling and that God was asking me to sort of change careers and take on this long road towards medicine. But there was... Uh, at least a decent portion of me that said that's not that's too long and way too expensive I mean how would I pay for that sort of thing um, so I can remember actually very clearly I was I happened to be reading a book on hearing God that was the title of the book and um, it was kind of appropriate because I was trying to hear from him is this actually what you want me to do and so we were in a very small town in the northern part of Morocco on a little bit of a trip and um, I was I was just like heavy in prayer because I felt like this was the season that I needed to make this choice. It was in the, that sort of few months and weeks and um, never happened to me before and actually has not happened to me since, but I felt, uh, I, I fell asleep and received a dream from God, which I'm sort of hesitant to tell a lot of people, um, but I think in this context we're safe. We're all friends and we believe that God can do whatever he wants. Um, so I, this dream, and I won't go into all the details because um, it's too long, but at one point in the dream, there are these two options, and it's very clear to me. It's like this hallway. There's doors on either side, and one door is the door of staying in engineering or staying in some sort of technical field, and it's like beautiful. It's like a little grassy meadow on a scenic overlook. Um, it's kind of funny as I look back on it now, and it's like I take a step in there, and I'm like, this is nice. Let's stay here, you know, and because um, the other door I knew was medicine, and it was just a long, dark like hallway with no ending, no nothing. It was just dark. And, um, and so I sat down in this like happy place that was me in whatever field other than medicine it was. And uh, instantly God showed me this picture of a guy in a rowboat. And I know this sounds really weird and I'm not trying to be weird. I'm, I'm usually not uh, like my, these, these images are not sort of how my normal soul works. But God, I mean, clearly, clear, I mean, I remember it just like today. He showed me this picture of a, of a guy in a rowboat, and he said, if you stay here, you will get everywhere that you're going on your own strength. And you will, you'll, get some, you'll get somewhere. You, you know, the guy in a rowboat can get somewhere, but you won't, you won't know how to rely on me the way that I want you to. And, and the immediate contrasting picture was a guy in a sailboat. Because um, a guy in a sailboat can go around the world. I mean, you can go anywhere in a sailboat. Um, you can harness harness the wind, and you're not on your own strength. And the, and the contrast was so clear, and God said, if you pursue medicine, 
it's not even necessarily about the medicine. It's about that the road will be long enough that you will learn to rely on me because you'll have to. And you will learn to harness the wind of my spirit to take you in places that you wouldn't be able to get on your own strength. And I can remember it so clearly. And um, it was funny because a friend of mine was visiting at the time and I told him this dream. And he's like, well, that's great. Now you know. Now you know what you got to do. I was like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems a little bit ambiguous. Uh, I think I should think about it a little more. But, um, but here we are, you know, five years later. And uh, I guess clearly God thought I still needed some help because I need, <laughs> we found out we were pregnant with our third child in the middle of medical school and she was going to be delivered four months before the biggest test I'll ever take in my life. So uh, God actually thought that I wasn't quite um, done learning these lessons. But I, I have learned slowly, just so slowly, that his development takes a lot of time. And that at the end of the day, we need to learn that we have no strength on our own. So maybe you're thinking right now, it's probably logical, so what am I supposed to do? Right Now, now that you've told me that Paul had 11 years of preparation... Am I just supposed to sit around? Do I play video games or browse Facebook or online shop? You know, like what, what are the activities that we're supposed to do? And that was really going to be the whole part two of this sermon. Um, but we can at least look at Paul and see what he was doing. You know, he didn't sit around, and that's not really in his nature. He, was, he went to the desert to seek God. That's what the Jew does when he wants to seek the Lord. They go to the desert. He preaches boldly in the name of Jesus. He spends time proving that Jesus is the Messiah from the text. You know, he's studying it, actively seeking he speaks boldly in the name. He debates. You know, he's committed to being faithful in, in the season that God has him. And so I would ask you, what season are you in right now? And where uh, is God asking you to be faithful in your life today? In the in your season of life that he has you here in Scranton, I think it's worth asking and then placing our trust that he is going to fulfill our calling eventually. You know, many of us, maybe we don't know our full calling. He hasn't come to us and said, you are going to be my guy to do this or my gal to do that. But we can know that he is going to accomplish his purposes in our lives in his timing. And so all he asks from us is surrender. I think Paul clearly knew this. And I think that it's that perspective that allowed him to write uh, to the church in Philippians. He writes this, um, I think it's going to be up on the screen. He says in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul could see in his own life that God began the work. He, can, he knows that it wasn't him. You know, he was actively pursuing Christians to their death, and God met him. So God started it, and God finished it, and he will do it. The, the writer of Hebrews calls that, that God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And I think that we can uh, rest in that. We can rest in his plan for us surrendering control. And there's such a beautiful release uh, and and peace in our lives when we actually allow God to do that. So um, just a few quick words if we forget, because I'm sure that there were moments when Paul was saying, God, what happened? You know, you called me to this and I'm stuck in Tarsus. This is my hometown. How can I even be useful here? I want to go places. I want to do things. And many of us feel that way. Um, If we forget, we will often find ourselves bitter. We'll find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people. And we'll say, look at the ministry you gave them, God. Why isn't it mine? And we develop this sense of envy. You know, I can, I can remember in, in Morocco feeling like, God, you brought me here, and I felt like you wanted me to reach these people, and yet every time I try, I fail badly. You know, I, I see other people, and they have immense ministry. They can talk to anybody. They can bring up Jesus, 
and they have people that are coming to know you and they're discipling folks and all I'm doing is floundering here. I don't, I don't understand. And it's not, um, it's not for us to really look around and say, God, you're using these people and not using me. Um, all we get to do is sort of place ourselves in that moment of surrender and say, God, you can use me for your purposes and I want you to develop me um, to do it. So I, uh, envy comes in, bitterness comes in, and um, we'll find ourselves frustrated. We find ourselves um, without any peace. And so let, I want to challenge you to, to stop for a second and say, God, I trust you. And I trust that you are going to bring me to where you want me and that you're going to use me along the way and you will use me when we get there. But it, at the end of the day, I surrender to your preparation. Amen? So um, what I want to do is kind of respond. And I think that, that God has built us to respond to him through worship and through song. So I'll invite the band up and we're actually going to spend a, th- a few minutes um, kind of learning a new song together. And uh, it's a song called Take My Life and Let It Be. It's an older song. It's a hymn that's been sort of redone. And I think that it beautifully sort of captures what we're talking about today. It's this moment of surrender where we can say, God, take the moments and the days, take everything about me and use it for your glory. Um, but before we sing it, I actually want to read the lyrics together so that we're not confused by them because it is a new song and there are a lot of words. So um, the lyrics will be up on the screen and I'll read them for us. It says, uh, Take my life and let it be consecrated, that it's set apart or um, dedicated to. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. And now it's going to talk about the individual aspects of who we are and surrendering them. Lord, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet, let them be swift and beautiful for thee. The second verse says, Take my voice and let me sing always, only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver, take my gold, not a mite, not even a little bit would I withhold. Lord, take my intellect and use every power as you choose. The chorus says, here am I, all of me. Take my life, it's all for thee. And then the last verse says, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee.